Everybody, my name is Larry. I'm an alcoholic. And uh, do you want me to start doing steps eight and nine? Yes. yes. Okay. Um, right out of the gate, I wanted to. Th I want to thank Kevin for that introduction. I uh, was expecting a little more than that, but uh, you know, I appreciate what you said. And uh, Ali, I. Uh, I want to thank you for all your hard work and what you've done, but this is neither the time nor place for that. Anyway, I, uh, I'm glad to be here with you guys. And uh, it's been a excellent conference up till now. And uh, I, uh, it, it's, it's, I've got a lot of, I mean, I know everybody on this speaker platform and uh, when this is done, I'll really tell you how these folks are. These guys, uh, I, I miss them a lot. In fact, the last time I was with Steve Lee, uh, he really went out of his way and uh, took me to the Waffle House. And you know, they don't make guys like that anymore, but uh, it's, I'm just glad to be here with you guys. And, and, and uh, I know uh, this, is a, this is a very important step in my life. And uh, um, steps eight and nine, you know, up to this point, we have found out what the problem is. Up to this point, we have uh, been hearing about what God's will is for us. And, uh, and up to this point, we've been uh, self-diagnosing and with a sponsor finding out what's wrong with us. So basically, we have been turned this way. And now, now the magic happens. Somewhere in our third step, he says we were reborn. And it is in this step that I began to feel like I was finally shifting from that selfish, self-centered uh, person that I was to realize the damage that I've done and to start clearing up the wreckage of the past. And when you start sponsoring people, like many of us do, there is something to watch when a man is at day one and when he starts coming to you ready to make amends to people on that list. We are now looking at a totally different man. That's a whole different guy right now. And for the first time in my life, I wanted to do something 100%. Because it was my defects of character that I still had enough of that were going to sprout up like wheat in a field at this step. My procrastination. But the one that saved me, believe it or not, was this feeling, this sense of approval from my sponsor. I wanted to do something right. I wanted to be as thorough as I could. You see, I'd been sliding in and out of Alcoholics Anonymous from 1975 to 1982. And the reason had nothing to do with me just getting physically sober, and then that was it. And I thought for sure that my desperation would be enough to keep me sober. 
But I'd found out that that desperation would be like any other emotion in my life, that after a month, it wears off. And if I didn't replace that desperation with inspiration, I was a dead man. And the only thing that was going to inspire me would be the book Alcoholics Anonymous and, uh, and the actions that we take. I had no idea. And then even then, just staying sober on inspiration wouldn't be enough. That there would have to be perpetuation. That this gift would not be mine to keep. You know? And this had been an awakening that was going to be long, long, long overdue in my life. You know, um, today is a great day for a guy like me. Uh, it's my mom's birthday. My mom passed away about four years ago. And uh, I come from good people. I come from great people. You know, and now this this book, Alcoholics Anonymous, is going to start saying that we made a list of people we had harmed and became willing to make amends to them all. And remember, everything all along this line, Bill thinks that you're following them. He's thinking that I'm identifying with them and that I'm following them. And when I lead that, when I read that last paragraph in the first step in the 12 and 12, it says, we became willing to do anything to relieve this merciless obsession. Boy, I couldn't think of a better word for this malady that I have, alcoholism. This merciless obsession, where that when we know exactly what the consequences are of our next drink, we can see our body deteriorating. We know the consequences of our next drink. We can see the people that we've harmed and that are begging us not to, and yet the only thing that not drinking ever squeezes out of this head of mine is this thought that maybe this time it's going to be different. Or in my case, what's the use? What's the use? And I couldn't, I didn't have power to stop that. And I knew it was going to get me again. And I'd taken that inventory and seeing that uh, my life was my fault. And taking the word blame out of my my vocabulary, God, you can't do that. I hang my hat on that. And, uh, and I'm sitting with the sponsor, and we're going through this list. And I start seeing some of these defects of character and these amends. And, uh, and seeing that at the top of my list was, would be God, that he would be the one that I resented right out of the gate. He would be the one that, uh, that I'd turned my back on at an early age, at about five, you know, because my little brother died and, and, uh, and I had this thought, my God, what type of God would create a baby and kill it? I'm next. And I didn't want nothing to do with that. And I'd run away and I've been running away from him ever since. And I spent 30 years trying to prove that God didn't exist. And then I'd sit in a meeting of Alcoholics Anonymous and realize that he had to be there in order for me not to believe he was. That he had to be there. And that he'd been there all along, but I, and I couldn't stand that growing up. I didn't want nothing to do with him. Because I, 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 I was afraid it was going to happen to me and I didn't know when it was. But I had some great parents 
and growing up and this thing being my mom's birthday today, you know, I just, uh, my mom was a sweet lady. I was born in Detroit and I come out to California when I was about six years old, brought up in a little off orphanage and uh, my mom and dad uh, broke it off. And, uh, you know, I was brought up at an orphanage in a foster home for a while. And my mom was a sweet lady. She was a little Scandinavian lady, about five foot tall. She loved diet pills. So she was always running around the house around midnight, you know, sorting out nuts and bolts all night or raking the neighbor's yard around four in the morning, you know, just a busy lady, you know, but, you know, no matter what time you got up, she was up, <laughs> you know, it was great, you know, and, uh, you know, she was always making Afghans, you know, the Afghans all over the house, you know, couches had Afghans, chairs had Afghans, my dad's golf clubs had little poodle heads she knit, you know, and growing up with this sweet lady, I remember, and she was a beautiful lady, man, she looked like that actress, Kim Novak, just a gorgeous lady, you know? And um, I remember writing that inventory and, and seeing what I would do with this sweet lady, you know? And what I would do with people who would be and give me love and attention and affection. And you know what I would do? I would play her like a fiddle. That there would never be a time too old or an age too old or a time too inconvenient for me not to put the tap on that lady. I never want to forget that. I never want to forget what it was like to be 17, 18 years old and be put away for a small period of time. And when I come out, I'm supposed to go to the courthouse and, and all that. And I don't, the bus lets me off on a Monday and I run into the neighborhood and I don't come out till a Thursday. And I don't come out and go to the courthouse. No, no, I show up unannounced at my mom's place of business. You see, she's working at a dry cleaners and she's cleaning people's houses on the weekend. And I'm ashamed of her and I make fun of her. But I'm not too ashamed to show up that morning, eight o'clock in the morning with my, my filth and my disgust and what I know Joe used to call my habiliments of despair. And I'm standing in that parking lot and I'm about 50 yards away from my mom and that little uh, dry cleaners and the rain's coming down and I'm hiding behind a parked car waiting for that last customer to come out so I could make my move on my mom. And that last customer comes out and I started walking through that rain with my filth and my disgust. And I open up that door to that dry cleaners and that little bell hits that glass door and my mom turns around and makes that oh so familiar sound. She, oh my God, Larry, where you been? Where you been? She grabs her wallet and she peels out $1 and then $2. And I run right by her and I grab that money and I run off to Wilmington where I'm going to die. Now, the thing that brings it home to me with you guys today and our new friends in Alcoholics Anonymous, you take this same man, new in Alcoholics Anonymous, willing to go to any length. And I need to ask you something. How come when my life depends on it? If you were to put Ali or any one of these folks at same distance as me and my mom in that parking lot, how come when my life depends on it? Make no mistake, it will. I can't walk that same distance and ask these folks for a job in a meeting that's going to save my life. But I can walk that same distance and use my mom and folks like her time and time and time again. And I'm here to share with you. As it's been said all morning. That if my alcoholism doesn't kill me, my selfishness and my self-centeredness will. Make no mistake about that. Bill always connects self-centered and alcoholism. 
He says that's the trigger is our selfishness. And if I can find out what that thing is that keeps me from serving you, I will have found the key to life. There's a miracle here. There is a miracle here. Something happens when I begin to start serving you. Something happens to a guy like me. Which is why it's so important for a man with 38 years to have a home group, a fabulous home group. A routine of meetings all week and a job in every one of them. And I don't have it so I can run off to Ontario on a Saturday and brag about it to 900 people. Well, maybe a little, but you know. But it's for one reason and one reason only. If you're new, that I will never get so sober that I can't get drunk again. But I can get so drunk that I can't make it back. And I never want to forget what I used to be like. See, that's what makes Alcoholics Anonymous different than any room you're ever going to sit in. Is we're not here to talk about your drinking. We talk about our drinking. And maybe, just maybe, that miracle of identification. Oh, thank God. Thank God I could identify with you folks. Because I was thinking that there was something wrong with me. Because all my life I'd been sitting in rooms with people with these books and, and, and films and, and pictures and, you know, my fat feet and my liver. All, and, they had, and they had plaques on their wall. And every one of them were trying to talk me into being an alcoholic. They had the proof. And thank God they couldn't do that. Thank God. My saving grace was they couldn't talk me into being an alcoholic. Because they would have robbed me of the most divining moment of my life where I was to concede to my innermost self that I was an alcoholic. This was the first step in recovery. You don't get talked into that spot. We drink ourselves to that point. When there's just no other answer around. There's nothing like surrender to the alcohol because I believe when I surrender at that level, for a cat like me, I'm brushing shoulders for the first time in my life with a power greater than myself. When I am humbled to the point where I'm willing to do anything, I'm brushing shoulders with a power greater than myself. And there was nothing more sweeter. See, my mom and dad, I, I introduced them to a level of living they never knew existed. And then I began to rub their face in it. And one of my biggest defects of my little list on this eight and nine was this sense of entitlement that I had. I thought this was just for the rich. Not only rich people, I didn't know that little losers like me had it up to their ears. This sense of entitlement where you think you deserve what you haven't earned. This sense of entitlement that everything should come your way just by your asking. This sense of entitlement that just because you show up, you don't got to lift a finger to get all the peace and serenity that the people in AA have by working the steps. See, this was to, this was to choke me out my entire life. I didn't get that from my mom. I never want to forget the amends that I made to them. I reduced this little beautiful lady to a neurotic mess where the only thing she could do was look out a kitchen window and wonder where I was at. 
look in those obituaries, wondering where I was. See, I never want to forget that. I never want to forget what it was like to sneak up on her one night at about 11 o'clock at night. And she lays my head on her lap. And she starts rocking me. And I got not, hell, I, I'm a grown at, I'm a grown man. And I've got my head on my mom's lap like I'm a five-year-old. And she's rocking and crying. And I can hear, and I can feel the tears hitting me. As she's praying to this Michigan God, oh, please help my baby boy. And I hear her mumbling and I get up and I said, what are you doing? What are you doing? Don't you worry, everything's all right, mom, go to bed. And she goes to bed. And I remember that my old man used to hide liquor around that. And I looked all through her kitchen and I start, just like the days of wine and roses, I'm tearing up her kitchen, looking for that bottle and I can't find it. And I just go back and my mom comes out. She says, honey, what's wrong? Honey, what's wrong? And I said, don't you, honey, what's wrong with me? And I start moving my mom around till I get blood out of her nose. Just for me to pass out and see that the bottle had been in the trash. I'd already drank it. And then I go to make these amends. My mom couldn't stand me. She's afraid of me. She was afraid of me, and rightfully so. It took her years to start opening up those arms, years of sobriety, but I never gave up. I never gave up. I got to take care of my mom. I got to take care of my mom in her later years. What a window that is to have my mom in that assisted living. Four flights up. All the ladies around her have, have flowers. Every one of them got flowers on their balcony. They got real roses, real tulips and stuff. And my mom's got plastic flowers. And I said, no, 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 this ain't happening. I said, mom, I'm gonna get you some real flowers. She says, honey, I don't want it. I don't want them. I said, no, 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 mom, you don't have to pay for them. I said, I'm gonna buy them. We're gonna have some real flowers, mom, just like these other ladies. No, honey, I, I don't want no real flowers. I said, Mom, you don't understand. I said, I'm going to take care of them. I'm going to have planters and I'm going to have roses and, and you're just going to love them, Mom. You won't have to have these plastic roses. You'll have real flowers and they're going to smell great. She said, no, honey, I don't want them. I said, look, I don't think you understand. She says, Larry, for God's sakes. She said, I don't want any real flowers. She says, I love to sit in my rocking chair and watch the hummingbirds suffer. Now, <laughs> why, why would I ruin that for old mom? You know what I mean? And I fell in love with her. We finally had to put her into a, a assisted living where they had to take critical care because she was losing her memory and stuff. And I would have pictures. And every day I'd go by there after work in my plumbing truck and I'd drop off diapers and I would comb her hair and stuff like that. And I would put pictures of the family, with the names by. And I got to do the thing I love to do most and that's introduce myself to her every day, you know? And, uh, and I, got to, I got to take care of Betty. I got to take care of Betty and I love her. 
One day I came in there and she's got a friend, a lady of color, beautiful lady. She looked like Dionne Warwick and she had her walker and she was over there visiting mom. And I came in with my bag of stuff and, uh, and I kissed my mom and I put her stuff away and I poured her some milk and stuff like that. And, and, uh, and this lady, Catherine, my mom's friend, grabs me and she taps me. She says, Larry, she says, Larry, she says, I, I need to ask, she says, I need to tell you something. And I said, what's that, Catherine? She says, I need to let you know that I'm available. I said, what's that? She says, I, I want you to know that I'm available. I says, really? I says, what do you got in mind? <laughs> you know, she says, I want you to know that I'm available for you to do to me what you do to your mom. You know what? I started doing that with Catherine. I started visiting Catherine. You know, within about two weeks, I had about five of these little ladies follow me around when I'd go visit my mom, you know. Felt like Captain Kangaroo, you know. And I loved it. I was with my mom the day she passed. And I loved it. And I wrote her a little poem. And I let her know that it was all right to go. You know, you guys taught me. Most beautiful wind. Now my dad was another thing. I grew up, let me read for you from the book real quick. We don't use this as an excuse for shying away from the subject of God. When it will serve any good purpose, we're willing to announce our convictions with tact and common sense. The question of how to approach the man we hated will arise. Did you hear that? The man we hated. I'm talking about my father. It may be he has done us more harm than we have done him. And though we may have acquired a, a better attitude toward him, we are still not too keen about admitting our faults. Nevertheless, with a person we dislike, we take the bit to our teeth. It's harder to go to an enemy than to a friend, but we find it much more beneficial to him. Now, if there was one guy that I couldn't stand my entire life, it was my dad. He represented everything that I was supposed to be. He was a hard-working World War II vet. He was born in the ghetto of Detroit. And he's seen a lot of things. You see, my dad came in that bedroom when I was five years old and told me that my baby brother died. For nine months, I'd been sitting in that room, saving up my baseball cards, oiling it up my glove and thinking about that kid brother. And my dad come in there and told me that my baby brother died. I don't remember having any compassion or concern for my mother and father. I did what I always would do when I didn't understand something. I got mad at it. I ran after that old man with 60 pounds yelling and screaming, you promised me, you promised me. And that was the start. That was the start of a brick wall that I'd start building between me and my father. You know, I didn't like what I heard in that house. My dad was a happy drunk. My dad was a happy singing the blues, Nat King Cole, Bobby Darren drunk. You know, he was a refinery worker. So he was, you know, he was always sneaking into his own home. It was an amazing thing. He's always working different hours, you know. And uh, he got drunk one night, snuck through my bedroom window that big boot came down on my chest. I grabbed that boot and I said, dad, he says, 
why don't you have mom make you a set of keys? You know, my God, she's up anyway. You know, I can hear the Hoover going now, you know, and me and my dad started. I started drifting away from my father. I didn't trust him. I didn't trust him. He's telling me to do stuff and he ain't doing. I'm hearing sounds at that house that I don't understand. I'm seeing people get hurt. And I, and, uh, and I started running away from home. And I didn't want nothing to do with the good life. And all my dad wants, you know, there are several men on this thing today. And one of a father's prized possessions is his son. I didn't know that. I didn't know that guys brag about their sons. I didn't know that. I didn't want nothing to do with this guy. My dream wasn't to be a, a, an architect or a cameraman or anything. My dream was to get as tall as him so I can go at him. I didn't like what he was doing in that home. And I didn't like the way I felt. And I blamed the old man for every ounce of it. And at 11 years, and, and being a happy drunk, he was a happy singing the blues and that King Cole, Bobby Darren drunk. I knew he found something and I wanted some of it. At 11 years old, that's when I started drinking. And alcohol did for me that very thing that every, some, see, I knew I was a nobody. You hear it enough, you begin to believe it. But at 11 years old, I took a shot of four rose whiskey with four over little hoodlums with myself. And, and for the first time in my life, a little nobody felt like somebody. I felt like a somebody for three hours. And to somebody, it feels like a nobody all the time. There was nothing like feeling somebody for three hours. And I just marked that spot. Because I wasn't feeling that way when I was sober. And I knew I found something. Now, I didn't head out to Skid Row the next day and lose my paper out and come to AA, you know, but I marked that spot because of the first time in my life, it was okay being me. It was okay being me. I wasn't that thing that they were telling me. In my life at 11 years old, I, you know, I, it was all around the house, so I always take those nips. But once I got to high school, it was off and running. I knew at 16 years old that my life was taking a right turn when my best friend Louis Sanchez was shot and stuffed in a trash can. I knew my life was turning a different way. And the old man was scared to death of me. He didn't want nothing to do with me. I'd get drunk and I'd pick these fights with him. And I remember making amends to my father. I remember that. And because I came in and out of Alcoholics Anonymous from 1975 to 1980s, my wise sponsor told me, he says, no, 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 no. You're not going to run off and tell them anything right now. He says, Larry, you've been going in and out of AA for so long that every time you mention that they're, you're back in AA, they're expecting a drunken two weeks. He says, you get your sobriety and you get on your feet in AA before you sick yourself and start announcing your sobriety before you have it. These folks have been through you with enough. Let them watch, the book says. Your behavior will impress them. More than anything you say. My sponsor, Johnny, told me a long time ago, 
He said, son, Norm told me a long time ago, Larry, you are speak so loud, son, I can't hear a word you say. See, that's why it's so important, man. That's what these steps are doing to you. Be six and seven. Six and seven. That man that comes to that porch is a totally different guy. And these people are going to see it. These people recognize it. I was about three or four years sober when I sat my daddy down. And I'm sitting with my dad. And I start making these amends that I had them all wrong. I had them all wrong. I was condemning him because he had a dream for his son. All he wanted me to do was live the good life. That's all he wanted, but I couldn't hear him. I couldn't hear him. That's why I had to be careful about my anger, that no matter what I'm mad at, whoever you're yelling at, they don't hear the problem. They just hear the violence. And whatever your subject is, they can't hear it over your violence. And I sat with my dad, and I told him about that day that my baby brother died. I told him about how I felt. I told him about how wrong I was for using him and what I did to his wife. My dad looked at me after I started babbling for about half hour or so. He says, do you mind if I say something? I says, no, Pop, not at all. He says, Larry, I've seen a lot of things in my life. I'm a World War II vet. My ship got sunk. My best friends were mutilated to death. I've been in a lot of things. I've worked in refineries. I've seen a lot of fires and friends hurt. Me and your mother have been through a lot of things. He says, I know what it's like, son. I, I know what it's like to feel pain. He says, but I want to tell you about the worst day of my life. I says, was it the war, Dad? No, son, wasn't that at all. <clears throat> he says, you were about five years old. And I'd seen you for nine months saving up your baseball card. And I knew I was going to have to leave my room and go down the hall and tell you that your dream was a nightmare, that your baby brother died. That was the hardest day in my life, son. I didn't want to have to tell you that. He says, but I knew I had to, that I had to tell you the truth. Hardest day in my life. Now he says, I want to tell you about the best day of my life. Right here, right now. Right here, right now. I got my son back. I got my son back. And he says, whatever these folks are telling you what to do, son, don't you dare, dare wander away from it. Because this is the best thing I've ever seen. Me and my dad became best friends. 
about four years after that amends, my dad called me up and I just got done finished paying him off. Because him and my mom one time pulled in some money and tried to get me a lawyer. They spent their hard-earned money and I paid that back. And I paid my daddy back. And four days after I made that financial amends to my dad, he calls me up and he says, uh, I need to talk to you. I said, sure, Pop, what is it? He says, you know, I've seen something shift in you since you've been hanging around those folks. And he says, I need to ask you something. He says, you know, every morning I get up, I put my feet on the ground and I say, today's the day. Today's the day. I'm not going to drink today. And he says, by 10 o'clock in the morning, I'm in my glove box looking for my vodka. He says, I don't know what it is, but I can't stop. But he says, you've stopped. And I was wondering if you could introduce. <clears throat> I was wondering if you could uh, introduce me to your friends. Maybe I can see uh, see what you found here, and maybe something will happen. And so I, uh, I did what that book told me to do. I brought them to you. And then I dropped them off. And you gave him a book, and you loved him, and he stayed sober. He got a year or so. Dad got the cancer. Dad got the pancreatic cancer, liver cancer. And one more time, me and my precious wife, Rosie, I got to take care of my daddy. Stay with him. Walk him out. Be a power of attorney. It's goof. Power of attorney. Public offender. <laughs> a power of attorney, you know. And I would write his checks. And the hospice people, my dad pulled me down one day and he says, give me one promise, son, that you'll let me die in my own home. Don't let him put me away. I says, you got it, Pop. Every week, the hospice people would come by and the, the agreement was that if my dad could stand on his own two feet, he would stay in that house. And then the last time they visited, Pop was sitting in that chair with a little Dodger hat on. And they came by and he got up, he grabbed that little walker and he got up and he swayed back and he caught himself and he stood up. And, he... and the nurse looked at him. She says, uh, are you smoking? He goes, yeah. She's all oh, you can't smoke. He says, What's it gonna do, kill me? <laughs> well, I tell you what, my daddy hung around a little while after that. And one day I was over there. And what we would do is every Thursday, me and my dad would go out for chili. And on this Saturday afternoon, I went in there to write my check to my daddy for his rent. And he's in his room. And I get up out of the desk and I go to see how he's doing. And my dad's laying in his bed and daddy passed. 
His eyes were open. And I went over there, kissed him on the forehead, closed his eyes. Now, where would I get that? What is this notion of kissing another man? What the heck happened? Where would I get that? I'll tell you exactly where I got it. I got that in my home group. I got that in meetings of Alcoholics Anonymous, where week after week, people are taking cakes. And the men are kissing men and the ladies are kissing ladies and we're hugging and loving on our sponsors and our sponsees. And at the end of every meeting, we're holding hands and praying. That's where I got that. I finally started having a thing called compassion. And I got to walk my father out, the man that walked me in. And like I was telling you, every Thursday we would have chili. So I called up my sponsor and I told him that uh, my daddy passed. And he says, well, I'm sorry to hear that hot, hot shot, he called me. He says, uh, why don't you give me a call tomorrow and tell me how you're doing? I says, all right, Pop, I'll do that. Immediately, I started calling my sponsor, Pop. I don't know where that came from. Well, the next day was my home group. It was a 12 and 12 under the bridge meeting. And it was chilly day for my father. My sponsor calls me up two hours before the meeting. Maybe he needs a ride. He says, hey, what are you doing, jackass? And I said, uh, well, I'm, you know, Nothing really, <laughs> you know, it caught me, you know. And he says, well, look at, he says, uh, why don't you come and get me and let's go have some chili. Me and my sponsor, some 35 years later, are still eating that chili. He's still eating that chili. Last week, <clears throat> we sat on the couch, me and my sponsor. Because every Wednesday, I, I pick him up. That was our day. Wednesday was our day for me, and, for me and Johnny and Clancy. It would be an all-day thing. And uh, I'm sitting on Johnny's couch. And we're reading a book together. And... Uh, he says, you know, uh, I was like a son to Papa Chuck. I said, I know. I know. He says, you know, the past couple of weeks we've been reading this book. And he says, you're like a son to me. He said, I never had a son. But if I did, he says, I have a hunch it might be you. He says, every time we read this book, I see myself talking to Chuck. You know, I, I found my place. The book talked about we will find a power greater than God as we understand him. I didn't understand him. I was afraid of him. But, you know, the past several years, and this is, I'm a slow learner, you guys. 
I began to find my place, I, a, a place where I can sincerely, sincerely take a position on, right? When we sincerely take a position, what's the position? What is it? Is he, is he the director? Is he the employee? Is he the father? What is, whatever it is, it's your choice. But God, take a, take a position. And when I sincerely took that position, remarkable things. Well, what was my position to be? I'm my father's son. I'm my father God's son. I'm Alcoholics Anonymous' son. I'm my real daddy's son. I'm my sponsor's son. I'm his son. I don't have to pretend to be anything anymore. I gets away with all the images. I don't got to be a hotshot lowrider. I don't have to be anything. I don't have to pretend to be a cowboy, nothing. That I'm all right right here. And the most remarkable thing that I can tell you about these immense steps is that I spent a lifetime sober and drunk trying to get rid of the past. In 1974, the state of California put me in a state hospital. They put me in there for 30 days to be observed. And a year later, they let me out, totally observed. And they came up with the conclusion that I had to settle with my past. I had to, I had to get rid of my past, that my past was my problem. That's why I drank. That relieved me of the past totally because when I was sober, it was I had to get rid of this past. That was my chant. If I could just get rid of this past and then you guys, I would sit next to you in these meetings day after day, day after day. And you'd say those God awful words. We will not regret the past. No, 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 no. We will come to, we will learn to live with the past. We will not want to regret it. That our past will be our greatest. Wait a minute. My greatest ass, what are you talking about? Then the miracle of identification. The miracle of identification. I wanted to get rid of the magic that makes AA the magic. The magic isn't that we stop drinking. The magic is we have found a new way of life where we don't have to drink anymore. And we've done some things where the obsession has been removed so that we can get into the business of living. And you don't want to forget your past. That's your greatest asset. What are you talking about? Because one of these days, Larry, there's going to be a plumber. And he's going to come up to you. And he was going to say that, I know I've had a life drinking. But he says, when I'm sober, I feel so damn different. I don't know what it is about me, but when I'm not drinking, I am just crazy. And I've done these things and I, and I don't know who to talk to, but I know I'm not an alcoholic because when I stop drinking, my life gets worse. Bingo. Now we're talking about alcoholism. That the very thing they've been trying me to do for my entire life, since I was 10 years old, right? Larry, if you stop drinking, everything will be all right. And I stop drinking and I'm not all right. And I know there's something different with me. 
And I beg of you, if you're new, that if there's something about you that makes you feel different and out in left field, and you don't afraid to tell anybody, please grab somebody in your home group. Grab the coffee maker. He's a good suspect. Grab that fat ass coffee breaker, coffee maker. Talk to him. Tell, tell somebody what it is about you that makes you, and believe me, if you're new, you will not shock the people in AA. You are not going to shock us. Well, no matter what it is you did, if it hasn't been done by the first two rows on this gallery, it just hasn't been thought of yet, kid. You know, you will not shock the people in AA. Stay sober. That'll shock the shit out, the stuff right out of us, you know. Oh, yeah. Oh, ass would be my greatest asset. My problem is I keep taking it down from the shelf when it's unnecessary, right? You don't need, leave it up there for the new guy. There's a time and place for everything, Larry. We must get rid of this selfishness or it kills us. We must get rid of this selfishness. Yeah. Now I want to tell you about the prettiest little girl I know. At two years sober, I came in Alcoholics Anonymous on May 2nd, 1982. Because you guys spoiled my drinking. I couldn't drink you out of my head. I couldn't drink the people in AA out of my head. I was thinking about people I couldn't stand, you know? And I was able to realize what you were saying. When we conceded to our innermost self that we were alcoholics. This is the first step. Any length. At two years sober, I had to go through a divorce. I found myself getting angry. I found myself wanting to hit my first wife. I'm standing in her doorway, and I got a a year and a half little girl on the ground, my baby Lauren, only child I've ever had. And I'm yelling at her mom. And I see my hand go up and I'd never hit her, but I see my hand go up sober. And as I'm looking at my hand, I look down and I see my daughter on the ground like a Gerber baby looking up at me. These brown little Cuban eyes are looking up at me. And I said, no, 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 no. This ain't gonna happen. I'm not gonna put that picture in her head. I know what that's like. I'm no, 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 I'm not doing that. And I knew I had to make a decision with a sponsor. And I had to get honest with him about what was going on in that house. And I had come to the conclusion with my sponsor that I would rather not gamble with my daughter to hope that I don't do that or to get honest and realize that I don't love this lady I'm with and to let her go about her business. That you're not doing her any favors just hanging around and yelling at her. You can't be wrong with people and right with God. 
there is a miracle here. There is a... You understand what I'm saying? The sense of entitlement where I deserve to be treated nice even though I'm treating people crappy. Every meeting we close with, we talk about forgiveness. We will forgive those. How can I expect forgiveness if I'm not given it? I had to get a divorce. And the women in Alcoholics Anonymous, you hear me? The women in Alcoholics Anonymous advise me. You know what that's like. You may not be somebody's husband anymore, but you'll always be somebody's father. Don't you ever let that little girl wonder where you're at. You hear me? Now, if you can go to Canada and talk to the masses, why can't you drive to Phoenix and see your little daughter? What's more spiritual? And I started writing that little girl. The women in Alcoholics Anonymous advised me. You need to write that little girl. Send her postcard. Write her on Pocahontas paper. Don't use that yellow legal stuff. Write her on Pocahontas paper. And I would write that little girl letters. And I would drive over there 400 miles to see my little girl. And sometimes I'd be halfway there and her mother would call me up and say, we don't feel good. Don't come by. I didn't yell at her. I just said, all right, we'll try again next week. Now, that little two-year-old is 31 years old now. Last year, she had to take care of her, her mother. Her mother started drinking again. And within six months, she got wet brain. You hear me? She had 23 years sobriety. In, within a short period of time, she got wet brain and was in an assisted living. And my daughter would go by and see her every day and sit with her mommy, even though mommy didn't realize she was there. And I called her up because I always call her up. And I said, what are you doing? She said, I'm just watching mommy. And I said, my God, she says, uh, you go over there quite a bit, huh? She says, yeah, daddy. She says, I, uh, I just don't want her to have a, a lucid moment and nobody be there and her think that nobody cares for her. I said, my God. I says, how do you, I says, where'd you come up with that? No, she says, daddy, you taught me. You never forgot me. You kept driving over and sending me postcards. I didn't know she saved all those cards. I didn't know. She says, you taught me that, daddy. How about that? How about that the miracle of Alcoholics Anonymous? I love that little girl. Love that little girl a lot. 
taken my right place in Alcoholics Anonymous, making amends, making those financial amends. You know, there was one amends that was really brought me a good view of who I am. My oldest sister had a, had a son, was an uncle. And there's nothing cooler than being an uncle, you know? I love my uncle Jack. And I was this kid's uncle. His name was Ryan. Now, I'm 15 years sober. And I got this kid that my dad's fallen in love with. My dad's a grandpa, and he's got this little Ryan, this little blonde-headed kid. And, man, he's a star in my dad's eyes. My dad's going to his soccer games. My dad's going to his birthdays. My dad's spending time with him, and I'm getting jealous. Oh, I don't like this kid at all, and he loves me. He rolls around laughing when I'm with him, and I'm, I'm resentful at this kid, That's right? You know? 14 years old, I'm, you know, who, you know, oh, and he's just loving the heck out of me. And I'm resentful and I'm hostile and I'm sarcastic and he's just chewing me up alive. Well, getting ready to graduate from high school and everybody's making this big to do, right? And he's playing basketball. And he's out on the courts. And he, uh, he has a heart attack and dies. I don't have to worry about Ryan anymore. He'll never bother me again. How about that? I felt so ashamed of myself. That's how humility works in our defects of character. They get us to the point where we can't stand ourselves before we give them up. The only reason I hang on to my defects of character is because I'm getting something out of them instead. There's a sense of power. I lack the power. My defects give me some. Some of them give me some juice. That's why I'm hanging on to them. And I was, and every time I sponsor somebody, I see a little bit of Ryan. That chapter is called Working with Others, not working at others, not working down to others, working with, Alfred, with others. I think that whole chapter could be called Who's Helping Who? Who's Helping Who? And thank God for sponsorship. Thank God for folks like you who took a loser like me and brought him to his right place. Brought him to his right place. I love my home group and I love the people in it. And it seems to me for a non-believer, a guy who couldn't stand God, that I found faith in my fellowship called Alcoholics Anonymous. And I found faith in my commitments to Alcoholics Anonymous. And it appeared to me a long time ago that the more I served you, the clearer he became. There's a miracle here. 
There's a miracle here. And if you're new in Alcoholics Anonymous and you're here to get something, you're going to be discouraged because there's nothing to get in AA. There's nothing to get here. For God's sakes, look around you. <laughs> there's nothing to get here, man. But I tell you what I got. Be prepared to be divinely inconvenienced for the rest of your damn life, because this is the longest thing I've ever done against my will my entire life, which is why it works so well. It has nothing to do with comfort. It has to do with doing the uncomfortable to get comfortable with you and a power greater than yourself. And I'm a stickler for evidence. Make no mistake about that. And. What I see right now is that there is nothing more evident to me than this screen right now, my Alcoholics Anonymous. Because I am looking at row after row after row of people who should be dead, locked up, or insane. And look at us today. Look at us. Finest meetings in town, finest. You guys have listened to some of the finest speakers prior to me and after me. Great people. I'm a stickler for evidence. And by golly, it appears to me that we are happy, joyous, and we're free. And all day long, we've been playing in the evidence of a power greater than us. And I think I want to come back to that window tomorrow. Thank you so much.